Sometimes I think the roles that we learn the most from are the ones that are the most challenging for a variety of reasons. Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purposely with Marie Seide, CEO of the Australian Communities Foundation. It's a donor advised fund that's a little bit different to the norm. So instead of being place based, they cater for all of Australia. Their focus is on activating a nation of givers. We talk about all sorts of topics and issues. Marie is a daughter of a minister. She has a real passion for social justice, which was encouraged when she was younger. She talks about values-based leadership and about bringing your real self to work. A really fascinating conversation, well worth a listen. Can I just ask you, whatever platform you're on, whether you're on Apple Podcasts, whether you're on Spotify, can you please hit follow? It really helps me to get the message out there. Enjoy the episode. This episode of Purposely was brought to you by Benevity, all-in-one software solution that benefits employees, customers, nonprofits, and society. Let's get back to the show. Marie Seide, a really warm welcome to Pepsi Podcast. Thank you so much, Mark. Lovely to be here. Been really looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. You're the CEO of Australian Communities Foundation. What's its mission? What's its purpose? So we're what's called Intermediary Foundation, and we're here to support people with or organisations who want to be philanthropic, which means that we support people to set up a fund or a foundation with us and they can go about their giving journey with us. And the overall mission of the foundation is a fairer Australia. So a donor advised fund? Yeah, donor advised funds is what they're commonly known about in the US and which means essentially if you're in a position, a privileged position to be able to give through fortunate circumstances in your life, you can uh, set up a fund and then we help you achieve your giving ambitions. Now, I really want to go into a bit of the history of it. Before we go into that, just checking on the sort of size and scale of it. So you guys are based in Melbourne broadly 30 employees. you got a team based down there. Tell us a bit about the setup of it. Yeah, so we, our head office is in Melbourne. We're unusually for community foundations. We're a national foundation and we're essentially what we call a, an issues-based national foundation. So donors uh, set up a fund with us. We talk to them about what their interests are and what sort of philanthropy they'd like to achieve or giving. We usually use the term giving and we can have a conversation about that because it's just much more accessible as a term. And then people give either in Australia or overseas to their interest areas. Uh, and then we have a few areas as a foundation that we really focus and organise giving around and that sort of environment and democracy, inequality and First Nations self-determination. How much of it is, because donor advisors we just discussed, how much of it is it, you know, sort of listening to the donor and doing exactly what they say versus guiding them and supporting and assisting them about what topics or what issues or what causes they they fund? Yeah, great question. So philanthropy at its heart is about the individual or the family uh, or the organisation for when we're talking about corporate philanthropy and what you stand for and what your values are. So it's got to start with your own values, your own interests, your family history, what motivates you and all your children or your workplace and your colleagues. So that's it definitely starts with the donor and then when the the foundation comes in because we're sort of a very values-led foundation, so we tend to attract donors that ha- are really focused on social justice and environmental justice. So do your own giving and do your own giving within an environment that speaks to your values. Yeah, and you are unique. So 100 million broadly is your 
funds under management or endowment? Is that's about the scale of it? I'm a CEO, so I tend to round up, but it's sort of around 150 mil. It grows by about 20 to 30 mil every year. We bring in about 100 new funds every year. And then we have a range of private clients. So it's sort of a really amazing organisation in that it speaks to the generosity of Australians in that we regularly attract people and organisations who want to be philanthropic. Yeah. And one thing that jumped out at me was the um, move in 2018. You guys decided to go fully around responsible investment and divested the then $90 million by the look of it and really shift it towards investment for good. Tell us a bit about that decision, because I imagine that was a seems like a great decision, but I imagine it was a tough one. Yeah, such a powerful move. And one of, we were one of the early foundations in Australia that really moved into strongly into the responsible investing space. It actually started in 2015, Mark, when we had a group of donors who were very focused on the environment come to us and say, this is really important to us and we we think the foundation needs to be a leader in this space. So that allowed us to essentially look closely at our investments and make sure that we weren't investing in anything that was causing harm. And then we went on a journey to be much more proactive than that and bring in a a sort of a full responsible investing policy. And uh, that means that we're now beyond just making sure that we're not in anything harmful or, or negative, we're actually contributing to positive outcomes for people and the planet. And, you know, we're really proud of that and have been strongly supported by our donor community around that. Real alignment with your mission. But I imagine at the time there was opposition and there were people talking about trade-offs. How much opposition did you face? I actually think in hindsight, and I've since had some of our our core and heartland and long-term supporters come to me and say, it actually was the other way that if we hadn't moved, we would have lost our heartland environmental donors. So, so we were in a position of, of needing to take that move, but we certainly had, like, I remember one morning was probably an amazing sort of, I'll never forget it in my CEO journey. I had someone sort of come into my office who had a fund with us and sat down and had a conversation and said, look, I don't, I don't support, don't support this approach. And it turned out that that person had a a strong career and history in the fossil fuel industry. And I found out later on that we lost a, you know, a $30 million bequest from, from that individual. And, you know, that was a real test of leadership for our foundation and our board. And the immediate response was, well, we might have lost one potential bequest, but imagine how much more support we'll gain and from future generations and younger donors by taking this stand. And I, I think Times like that is when your sort of leadership and your sort of sense of commitment to a decision like that really is affirmed. <laughs> yeah. And you think, oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And looking back at the, the sort of past, and because a lot of community foundations, it's a North American concept originally, but it, it's around often around place-based giving. But your organisation is all of Australia, so people can give through you to causes all across Australia. Let's go back to the mid-90s when it was formed. So the, the founders were Marion Webster, who my path has come across a bit yes. um, when I was CEO of the Auckland Foundation, but Hayden Raysmith was the other. But I believe it sort of started on uh, Marion's kitchen table. It did. In fact, our office before my time was in Marion's back bedroom for um, quite a number of years. And you know that's not uncommon for small and emerging community foundations 
to be, you know, really volunteer-led, in it, particularly in its early in their early years. And then we emerged into Melbourne Community Foundation and were Melbourne Community Foundation for about the, f- the first half of our history. So we're 25 years old now. And then in 2012 or so, our then board made a decision that we were sort of looked at the organisation and realising we're beginning to attract many donors who were outside Victoria even and and we became Australian Communities Foundation and that that was a really I think sensible decision because there's also another really uh, large and well-established foundation in Melbourne which is Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation and Melbourne didn't need to yeah so Australian Communities Foundation was a was a great move and since then that's that decision's been really played out by the amount of sort of donors that we now have right across Australia. And and interestingly, the giving has expanded way beyond Victoria. And we now we give it we now give out more outside Victoria than we do in Yeah, because I mean there is a definitely a place for place-based giving, but then themes or causes, causes that particularly of interest individuals who want to give and then they got that freedom with you. And there was some I noticed in your history, there was some sort of guidance from Silicon Valley Community Foundation, which I find really interesting. So one of the most successful community foundations in, of all time. So I think like 13.5 billion, I read, <laughs> in, in terms of their total funds under management. But yeah, tell us a bit about their input. Uh, look, Peter Hero was one of the very early CEOs of Silicon Valley. He's, he's unfortunately passed a few years ago and no longer with us, but he was a fabulous mentor for our foundation and for Hayden and Marion in the early days. And the funds under management, as we call it, so the size of the corpus for some of those large community foundations in the US is sort of eye-watering and Silicon Valley is certainly uh, one of the largest because it's based in sort of the tech heart of America and you know people like Mark Zuckerberg have donor advised funds at at Silicon Valley. Yeah. So it's it's just quite amazing to watch the rise of the donor advised fund concept in the US. It's now the fastest growing charitable entity in the US by far. So and only really emergent in Australia, and I'm sure people will be listening to us thinking, I've never heard the term donor-advised fund or sub-fund, which is what it's often known as in Australia. Yeah, I mean, it's emergent in New Zealand as well. So we have 17, but it's it's an alternative for people who don't necessarily have to have the hassle of setting up an independent charity, and then it's tax-efficient as well. And it kind of it makes sense pulling those funds as well and getting that sort of investable power. All of those things makes it lots of other reasons to be involved in them as well. Yeah, look, you explain it, it beautifully, Mark, because I know you've had a background in this space as well. But essentially, it is absolutely just a simple alternative to a, what we call a private foundation in Australia or a PATH. And it just means that you don't have to set up your own board and invest your own funds and the grant making and administration happens on your behalf through our foundation. Yeah. Interestingly, we now support both. So we know, we also support people who want to set up a private foundation, but our donor advised funds have been our history and where we've come from. Absolutely. And in terms of you guiding givers and guiding generous people to good causes, like you go above and beyond, like you've just discussed some of them, but I'm thinking around First Nation people and in terms of equity, like assisting people to, to live a more equitable current and future. Yes, and and, and being, a as I, I call it, a sort of a mission-led or a values-led foundation has been really important because 
what it allows us to do is to support people with their own giving journey and, and people, you know, can give to, you know, a whole variety of, of charitable community-based organisations. So they might have an interest in the arts or they might have an interest in education or democracy or, you know, animal welfare, animal welfare, you name it. We give out thousands of grants each year on behalf of our donors and people establish a fund and they name their fund and then they decide what they want to give to and we help them with giving inspiration. So we regularly send through emails and, and coordinate events for that support the interests areas of our donors. But then interestingly, across the top of that, when we became a national foundation about 10 years ago, we also thought it would be really important to have a point of view uh, to help people connect to those big issues in Australia and globally that can often feel really overwhelming if you're trying to tackle them as an individual. So climate change is a great example of that. How does one person, even if you're a Mark Zuckerberg, tackle climate change? Well, the answer is you can't. But when we actually come and give together around some of those really pressing issues, your funds can be pulled together with other people's funds and all of a sudden we have a lot more power to influence policy. So that's been a really big driver of the work of the foundation for the last half of our history. Wonderful. And changing tack for a bit, so taking you back a bit, and you've had a phenomenal career. So I've got your career arc as sort of comms, public affairs, then very much into designing programs that are going to support people around all sorts of issues. Amazing. And then very much firmly in philanthropy. And you're on the boards of all Philanthropy Australia. We'll talk about those other non-executive roles that you have. But taking you right back to when you were younger, what was the sort of foundations to your life that led you to purpose and wanting to make a difference? Do you look back at your childhood and think, yeah, there was some influence there about that was going to sort of design my future? Uh, absolutely. I often talk about sort of that social justice runs through my veins. I'm, I'm the daughter of a social worker and a Baptist minister. And, you know, the focus on justice and, you know, equity and who had access to privilege and who didn't and who was excluded and who has a voice was just really apparent in, you know, in our family values growing up and the way we viewed the world. So I, I then followed in the path of my mum actually and became a social worker. So I started as a social worker and really quickly developed an interest into what we think about as sort of systems, systems approach to the world. So what's going on? How do we think about all of those things in a systematic way? And how do we actually intervene in the system to make it fairer? And that's really been my entire career focus, whether it's been you know, in child and family services where I first started or youth mental health where I was involved in an, a range of organisations that really did change the system for the better in Australia for young people who had emerging health issues. And then really interestingly into I spent some time in drug and alcohol services thinking about how we run our community sports clubs so that they're more responsible environment um, before I moved into philanthropy. But the consistent theme all the way through has been sort of social justice. Yeah. And that social justice conversation in the household with parents, what, what did that sound and look like? What were the sort of themes? Do you remember it being a conversation around the dinner table? 
It definitely was a conversation around the dinner table, but I think it was also just demonstrated by the type of household we were. So it's, it's you know, when you're the family of a Baptist minister, the household is the manse, is the office, is the workplace, is the home, is the family environment. And there are a parade of people that come through which are people, you know, seeking advice, seeking support. People come through at critical times in their lives where they might have be grieving or be on the cusp of divorce or having issues within their family or their workplace. And I think the church is a really interesting insight into that blend of people's personal and work lives and seeing the intersection there because that's, I mean, there's no distinction in church life and so that you know watching how churches happen and how they operate and what leadership looks like and what authentic leadership looks like it was just a a fabulous growing opportunity for me that I didn't know was happening that I actually think I draw on more than I realize when I hit tricky times in my own leadership journey and I'm not necessarily talking about the faith aspect of that sort of the family of origin. I'm, I'm really thinking about how churches are sort of, you know, really interesting microorganisms of the larger society. Absolutely. And were you a confident child? So, you know, leadership is clearly your area of expertise. But back then, would someone have said that Marie is going to be a leader one day? I was one of those annoying, you know, school captain, elder child, you know, <laughs> you know you know, doing the right thing, growing up young person. In fact, I, f- I feel like that a lot of my actual growing up happened in my sort of early to sort of late 20s where I stopped trying to be all of those things and really went on a journey to find out sort of who I was in the world and what I stood for and, you know, what my values were. So, yeah, very interesting, I think, distinction between my early years and then my sort of more adult years yeah because you you know went on to did a degree or a couple of degrees by the look of it so you, it looks like you were incredibly driven you had aspirations and you wanted to you know fulfill your full potential was that do you remember that being top of mind and for you what a great question i think people saw confidence and leadership potential in me and i was one of those lucky people that was often supported uh, and mentored by great people. And I sought that out as well because I definitely was ambitious as a younger person. I think it's interesting to think about in the context of being a young female leader where those networks aren't always or certainly when I was coming through, they weren't as obvious or as established as they were for men. So having a good strong sense of self was really important and I think that came from my family and my parents and their belief in me but I think at some that only takes you so far I think as a leader that sense of external leadership and I think the last sort of 20 years or so has been much more of a a journey around how then I bring my own authentic sense of self to my leadership and share that with others. And I think that's probably a much harder thing to do. Yeah. And first role in social work or related field. So was that with Berry Street? Was that your first role? It was Berry Street, out of home care. So working with young people who couldn't live with their families and 
for reasons that were often really traumatic for both the family and for the young person. So I often, you'll hear the tremor in my voice, I often think back to those times of as, you know, really for a young social worker, that's often where we start and they can be really hard jobs with very few wins. But I do hold on to a couple of young people that I think about still to this day where we were able to make a real difference to their lives and think, well, sometimes that's what you take away from those really hard jobs was are there one or two people whose lives will be changed because of it? Yeah. And my myself, I worked in a HIV hospice at a relatively young age. And when I look back now, it's it actually was probably almost too much too soon in some ways. So I was around palliative care and, and end, end of life stuff. And I look back at how, not at the time, but just after that experience, sort of how I reacted. When you look back being around prevention of violence or being around those sort of issues, do you think it sort of shaped a bit about how you were and how did you protect yourself being relatively young and confronted with those issues? Yeah, I often think back to think how far we've come in some ways for recognising sort of stress in the workplace and what we put young people into, the situations we put young people into, you know, dealing with a, a really serious amount of trauma and also having to make very tough decisions that are where, where they're often the right decision or the is not particularly obvious, or there may not there may not be a, a you know an actual decision where there's a particular positive outcome, and I and I don't think that that's just the same for social work. I sort of think of the police force, I think of the armed services, I think of the emergency response services, those really high stress on call jobs where you're dealing with people at critical points of their lives in major trauma. I'm really pleased that we recognise that more now, but, you know, I'm sure that that's certainly an area that we still need to keep a watchful eye on for our young people when they go into those roles. Absolutely. And back to your career in terms of that career arc I was talking about. So combining sort of, which is a rare combination of social work, communications, public affairs, what do you think when you look back at that? the role that sort of stands out the most to you and you really felt like you were, you hit your straps or you, you did your best work or you you know, dominated your thinking? Really interesting to think about. Sometimes I think the roles that we learn the most from are the ones that are the most challenging for a variety of reasons and the sort of move from social work into communications and public relations really came about through a bridging role or a, bridge, a couple of bridging roles which is around, was around health promotion and health promotion is all about how, you know, in its bigger sense is how you influence the public to make a change in their behaviour and when I got involved in youth mental health, it was pre the time of Beyond Blue and pre the time of Headspace, which I'll talk about in a minute, which is a sort of a big national youth mental health charity that we helped establish. And there was still a lot of stigma around people coming out, particularly in the public domain and talking about having mental health issues. And so I became really fascinated with that area of work and worked for a fabulous pioneer in that space called Patrick Professor Patrick McGorry, who's known to many people in Australia and, and internationally, who really paved the way of destigmatizing young people who were experiencing early stages psychosis. 
and then convinced the government together with a number of, of other peers of his time to establish this service called Headspace for young people who were experiencing early onset of mental health issues. And his argument was that we do young people an incredible disservice when we have a sort of a naught to 18 approach and then adult mental health services kick in at 18 plus because most mental health issues appear between 15 and 25 and that and then we have this service system that cuts people off or moves them from one system to another at a really critical time so i was privileged enough to work with pat and many of his peers just at the point of of setting up this amazing entity called headspace and that's changed the landscape of mental health services in australia where we now have headspace centers around the country that um, look after young people from 15 to 25. And I was there right at the beginning where we sort of sat in a room with a team of just three or four of us and the government had given the tender to Origin Youth Health and a range of others to set up set up Headspace. And we were looked at each other and said, how are we going to do this thing? How are we going to establish a service that doesn't exist and make it national and really get out there and create a a health brand that's going to appeal to young people. And that was the role that I really look at. And I look at the Headspace brand to this day, which still exists, which for those of who know it is this sort of green head with a white, white outline and think, wow, I was a part of that. It was amazing, but really hard as well. And in terms of your life journey, so this is from what I could tell from my research is you're a young parent at this point and, and I was, so focusing yeah. on and passionate about young people's mental health was relevant because you had children at home and you cared. Yes, I had my I've got three and I had my two eldest during that time and they're now teenagers. So I have a seventeen year old, a fifteen year old and an eight year old and I look at my seventeen year old and fifteen year old and think, wow, that work really makes a difference to them, their peers. But the other thing that's really shifted is the, which has just been amazing, is the comfort that generation have now in talking about and identifying when they are struggling or when they have not just mental health issues, sort of a range of issues that they that might be challenges in their life and the courage they have to talk about it, not just to their peers but to they're sort of in their school environments and in the public domain and think, wow, how far we've come and how amazing that is. And looking back, why do you think young people and young people's mental health and their lives, why, why do you think that resonated with you personally? What Because it's clearly been a thread throughout the early part of your occurrence and still is, but why do you think it particularly resonated? I think it's because if you can get in particularly with children and young people no matter whether you're thinking about education or mental health or even social activities or sport, you can really help change the trajectory of someone's life. And also, particularly when we're thinking about young people who come from difficult circumstances or don't have as much privilege, getting into an environment where they just have someone who believes in them or you know, a sports coach or a teacher or a counsellor or whatever it is, can make, one person can make a huge difference in outcomes. And you see this over and over again, you know, and you and you look at 
people who are established leaders in different sectors and when when you listen to them tell their life story often they will identify that person who believed in me or I was given a scholarship at a critical point of time I think that's the answer you can make a difference because you were building a program when some of the stuff you just described wasn't as norm, the norm, you know, like talking, being able to talk freely about your mental health and it not providing stigma. But trying to future gaze, look into the future, and but also know that a service would be required where there weren't services. And love what you said around the hard, for, you know, like when you get to 15, you're thrown into the adult world, adult health, adult provision. But yeah, like was it was it challenging at the time trying to take people with you and being sort of gazing into the future about what would be needed and how this would survive? It certainly was, and I think any startup is. And, you know, I'm a big lover of startup podcasts. I listen to them all the time because I'm always amazed at how much people who are visionaries can achieve. And we certainly had, you know, I've talked about Pat McGorry, but there were many others uh, who were visionaries and were able to convince, you know, government and others to invest in this concept. So you need those pioneers. You also need the people who can come in behind them because they're not often the people, you know, the visionaries aren't always the people who can, you know, make the change behind the scenes. So you, you then need the people to, who can then build the concept out and then you you know obviously in health you're talking it's a it's a highly you know funds are scarce making a case for a new intervention is really tough with government and so then you have to prove the concept so has to be really evidence-based and there's a lot of scrutiny and it's a tough reality of any kind of social service system but particularly health when funds go in one direction because of the limited public purse, they're often seen to be taken from another. And, you know, that's a really tough decision for not just public policymakers, but also for the people who work in different sectors to be allowed at, you know, voice and advocate for the cause that they're trying to achieve change in. Yeah. And your move away from being more, you know, designing programs, being more, I say, more at the coalface into philanthropy, was that sort of a creeping thing that happened for you? How did it happen? No, it wasn't at all. In fact, it was a really fortuitous career opportunity. It came up to take up this role as head of Australian Communities Foundation. And it wasn't the deliberate move into philanthropy. It was actually much more of a, I really like what this foundation stands for. It fits with my value set. I think the work's really interesting. I can do something useful here and found myself in this world, what I call a weird world of philanthropy, because it's a really niche sector and it's quite a privileged sector where you're talking about people who have wealth, trying to think through thoughtfully how they're going to use that. I think I fell into philanthropy and have spent the last eight years or so, I think, in a role which is really suits my skill set because of that the foundation and its focus on social justice. Did you apply for the role? I did, yeah. I applied for the role. It was my first CEO gig and they took a chance on a sort of a young female leader and I was able to convince them somehow that they should take a chance on me and they saw something. I suspect it was, you know, <laughs> a combination of 
burning ambition and desperation and sort of slight crazy light in my eye. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and then they took the chance. I always think with community foundations, they're confusing to the sort of common eye. So I think because they stand next to their funder, you know, community foundations, they're a funder or, or a donor advice fund, but they're also, you know, in a sense, not raising funds, but attracting funds to add to their stable. When you went into that role, did you know much about community foundations at that point or, or DAFs? No, I didn't at all. And in fact, they're really hard to understand from the outside, which I think is one of the challenges of our sector. Uh, they are, right? Yeah, they are. <laughs> and, and you know that firsthand. Um, so, you know, so the short answer is no, I didn't. And the complexity of a community foundation is part of its challenge. But I think really simply the way I like to explain it is that we just support people who want to give and often overlay that with we support, you know, people with privilege who have a social conscience who want to give. And that that's us at our simplest. Like let's think about your conversation with the trustees. Do you remember you're clearly aligned on on values, great, but were you aligned on the growth that they wanted you to see in your under your leadership? Like what was do you remember what the total fund was at the point you joined? Yeah, it was around sixty mil. So we've we've more than doubled it now. And I think what the board were looking for was, you know, someone who who had a really strong strategic vision for where the organisation could go. And what was really interesting, and I think probably just a, a great fortuitous match was that I could bring my sort of communications, public relations, but also my social justice, social work experience into a role. And I think into this role. And I think the other thing that was probably attractive to the board at the time was the 20 years in the non-profit space. And so that's so important when we're sort of influencing, you know, the giving out of money to great change makers and community-based organisations and charitable organisations and leaders doing great work, having a sense, having your own experience of what it's like to be working and heading up a charity is invaluable. Yeah. So I think that really has stood me in good stead. Doubling the organisation or doubling the funds is, is wonderful. When you go back to the early strategy, did you do the sort of 100 days, listen, learn, and then launch the Marie Sidey, this is the <laughs> way the future's going to be? Like, <laughs> I hate the 100-day question. I often say to people I recruit, don't give me the 100 days. Tell me what you're going to do in the first six months and tell me how you're going to approach it. I probably did the 100 days. I wouldn't do it now. Because I, I think it's very the thing that you should do in the first hundred days is just listen, listen and learn and ask great questions and try to have as few fixed opinions as possible and try and stay open. It's so easy, I think, to go in and and say, well, I have this experience and knowledge from these other places that I'm going to impart here. So that that's a I think a, a common mistake we make as leaders, which I try not to do now, but I probably did, Mark. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking strategy on a page. Like, can you give us a quick rundown of what that successful strategy looked like? Like For, for Australian Communities Foundation? Yeah, for doubling it and, yeah. and um, yeah, having so much success. Look, I think the really, the like any strategic leadership role, any organisation, any for-purpose organisation, it's got to come back to what do we stand for? And how do we express that really clearly to the people we support, to so the clients we support, which in our case we call donors, but 
and to attract more, but also the staff who do the work and the organisations that are the recipients at the other end. So what I did was come in and, and have lots of conversations with people who'd been in and around the organisation for a very long time and said, what do you think Australian Communities Foundation is about? And they said, well, we think it's it's a, you know, a foundation that really stands for a fairer Australia. And so we made that. We, br- we brought those values front and centre and we made them really explicit. And that, I think, more than anything has been the key to the success because it put out a lighthouse then for other people to, like-minded people to find us. So that's the kind of easy bit. And then the yeah. the challenge is then how do you live that? How do you make it authentic? How does it show up in everything you do? How can your staff call you on it? Or how can your donors or stakeholders call you on it as a foundation if you're not being true? So that's the then flip side of that challenge for for-purpose organisations and for corporates who are wanting to be much more values-led. You've got to be, you've got to build in that authenticity at every level. So I don't know that is what people often like to hear in terms of the secret to success for growth, but I that's the thing that I really point to as the number one that has to happen and then you find great people to bring onto your team and you look after them and then they... they represent your values and your brand and that's how we grew and and that is still how we grow Mm. and that relationship between the board and you know the day-to-day people the executive team hugely important i imagine when you're on a growth agenda right you're trying to spread the word across and you've got to bridge that gap between we just discussed then around people not necessarily understanding what a community foundation is or what role it has and what value it can add are there things that you did, like I'm assuming you did a whole lot of thought leadership and then you also got in front of people and had a load of coffees. Then you did a whole lot of networking across various communities. But in terms of the mechanics of, you know, getting in front of people, was there any anything that you could offer in terms of, God, I'm really glad we did that or this is a really important? One of the ways we describe our work is that we're a broker between people who want to give and people who are doing great work in the community. And so one of the key ingredients for success have been going out and finding those great, what I I like to call change makers, and profiling their work and putting philanthropists or givers in the room with the change makers and setting up a situation where they can talk honestly about the challenges of being the leader of a for-purpose organisation and the barriers they face and the difficulties that they encounter. And, you know, and that can be anything, you know, when you're talking about running a charitable organisation in the community, that can be anything from like, we're just really small and emergent and don't have enough funds to sort of keep the lights on through to we're a big multinational INGO, which stands for International Non-Government Organisation, and and our task is to sort of have a strong culture and brand in Australia. So there's a huge spectrum of leaders out there doing amazing work and the key to success for unlocking philanthropic funds for them is to put the people who can give in the room with those fabulous leaders and let them hear from them. And it opens up this amazing world to people who are philanthropists and it allows them to think about, you know, my potentially modest funds or my sort of large amount I have to give can really make a difference if I support this leader in this way. So I think that's a really long way of saying we often 
instead of looking at the organisation, we often say, what's the leader doing and and how are they working and what do they want to achieve and what's their vision? And it's so it's no different for our foundation than it is for the foundations that we support. There's got to be a strong, articulate, clear, well-thought-through vision. Yeah. And reflecting on you a bit more, and how much has the work you've been doing over the last few decades, how much has it changed you and shaped you? A lot, I think. I'm continually surprised by the generosity of Australians. I think we don't think about ourselves necessarily as a giving nation. I mean, we often have the cultural cringe in many areas as Australians, but particularly in philanthropy, we look to the US and say, wow, they've got such a strong giving culture and, you know, really large established alumni connected to everything from their hospitals to their universities through to charitable organisations. But what I found with Australians is that I think our culture is just as strong of giving, but we do it differently. We're often a lot less public about it. And that can be hard then to encourage a culture of giving because that often comes from peer-to-peer. People talk about to encourage others. It's it's important to be talking about why you give and who you give to and why you support a particular organisation or why you're passionate about a particular cause. So that can be the challenge for Australians. But having said all of that, every day in my job I meet people, you know, ordinary Australians who might have more money than they need to live on and they want to be generous with it. And that just continually astounds me how and such a privilege of the role to to interact with people all the time who are being thoughtful about their lives and making a difference. And that's changed me. To answer your question, that's changed me because you know, it's meant that I now think about, well, what am I doing in my family and how am I teaching how am I teaching my kids the importance of thinking beyond themselves and how are we creating that culture of understanding if we're fortunate, then what are we doing and what difference can we make? So that's I think the being the really big difference. And being a leader in your, you know, professional life, your voluntary life, and then being, you know, a leader at home with children. What sort of score would the kids give you on a, you know, one out of 10 for leadership? <laughs> how, how would they describe you Teenagers as can a mom? be harsh. They definitely don't, they definitely call out the sort of, you know, don't CEO me. So they, they know if they, if they, Love if that. I, <laughs> I know if they think I'm bringing the sort of boss stuff home. So they, they call that pretty quickly and they're able to sort of bring me down a peg or two as as teenagers are brilliant at doing. But I think, interestingly, they also observe more than we think about work. So I've noticed that as they've gotten older and and more interested in thinking about where their own sort of lives are going to take them, that, you know, really interesting questions come out around so you know, what do you do in this situation and how do you look after your staff or, you know, COVID was fascinating for, I think, giving kids of all ages an insight into their parents' lives, their parents' work yeah. lives. It suddenly became really transparent. You know, they'd mm-hmm. listen in on meetings or they'd hear things going on and so it started a whole lot more questions. And and I think 
even accountability. You know, do you think you did that well, mum? Or, wow, that sounded like a tough conversation. That, that's that been a fascinating change, I think, through recent times. Absolutely. And do you think the generation you and I bring up, because we've got similar age children, does it feel different to you, like looking down as a parent or across as a, a parent? Do they, do they uh, act different? Their values are a bit different? Their worldviews a bit different? Yes, I think this generation doesn't get the credit it often deserves for being, you know, a really a generation that's bearing a lot of burden in a critical point in history for, you know, decisions that were made way before their time. And so they're coming of age in a time where they've got a legacy, which is a really big burden when we think around, think particularly around the climate. And they've looked at our older generations and made really clear-eyed, they have really clear-eyed views of what we've done well and what we haven't done well and what previous generations before us, the mistakes that have been made. But also they're really great culture holders of shifts that have been made around in a a whole range of areas. We talked about mental health, but, you know, I think particularly about gender fluidity is a great example now of – of young people where gender is, you know, really recognised as much more of a construct and not a fixed thing that, you know, our older generations can find hard to get their head around. And, you know, we think about the emergence of the LGBTQI plus community and the the challenges they face. For many people of teenagers now, being gay is such a non-issue and then beyond that being non-binary is a non-issue and being trans is a non-issue and you know being coming from the intersex community is a non-issue and so I, I think we need to be cautious as a sort of an older generation that we don't carry baggage on behalf of this generation coming through that doesn't exist for them and certainly seen that in my own family I have a I have a trans daughter and her journey has been um, in so inspiring and she's obviously is comfortable with me talking about her journey in this context and I have permission to do that. But, you know, when I think about her journey and she talked to us about being trans probably about three years ago now and so she was in the middle of her high school years and what I found completely fascinating is that for her friends and her peers, it was just a non-issue. And so we might have had all these fears about being bullied or being stigmatised or, uh, you know, and I certainly don't want to minimise the tough journey that, that trans people have to go on. It's incredibly challenging, but there's a very big generational change going on out there and I find that really inspiring. Yeah. When your daughter told you this and she your own journey with it like did you remember really struggling with the concept at first and like when you explored your own emotions and feelings and you talked about fear just then being fearful what did you do internally on that wow I think what you do internally and what you do externally is a great question so because they're really important differences so our young person did it in a very teenage way and stood up at the dinner table one day and just said I have an announcement to make I'm trans (laughs) and did the mic drop and sort of left us to <laughs> to absorb the announcement, which was clearly, you know, had been building for her for some time and that she needed to find a way to tell us. And we then went into, you know, clearly she felt comfortable in our family environment that this was going to be supported and, and well-received, and it was. 
but we certainly had to be really careful of monitoring our own internal emotions around that and then you know making it very clear about when we also what we needed to say to her and to make sure that she knew we were 100% supportive because you know when you talk to parents of trans young people and grandparents and and siblings and aunties and uncle one of the key things that people talk about is just the grief because you grieve for the gender of the young person that you knew and you the the construct and the way that you had related to them and you need to let that go and then embrace what it is that that your young person's bringing to you but there's no other word for it than grief and and that's your journey and so my key learning from it is that that's something that that as parents and grandparents and and um and family members is something that's on you to work through and on us to work through and really important that that if i can share anything from my journey that that and that that's not put on your own young person in their lives because they've got they've got enough to work through so that so that's kind of my reflection on on how we managed it yeah and there's a lot of hate out there but and we you and I talked before this episode and you said actually your daughter's protected from that like the circle she works in that you talked about generational differences and, about, and opinions about stuff but do you find yourself getting really wound up protective reactionary like how does it play out for you, like all of the stuff that's been narrated at the moment in public? Yeah, look, it's not a, it's not an ideal point in time to under, an understatement to have sort of someone close to you that you really care about on a journey around transitioning because it's not a safe space in the public domain and that's become particularly amar- apparent in recent years in Australia where for whatever reason, known only to our, you know, politicians have decided to use it as a bit of a political football and a way of drawing a wedge between part of the conservative elements in Australia. And so the people who have been at the other end of that are, are our trans young people who have been the topic of lots of vitriol and all the bearing the brunt of vitriol you know from everything of you know can trans young people participate in sport can professional athletes participate in in professional sport through to can we discriminate against young people in our schools on the basis of sexuality and gender you know all of those discussions if they're not managed in a way that is respectful can have real world consequences for our young people. Um, and just to give listeners an example, the suicide rate amongst LGBTQI plus young people is really high. And then if, when you think about trans and intersex young people, it's exponentially high. So what can happen is, you know, articles in papers, politicians talking not very thoughtfully and means that people in general public feel like they have the license to be unthoughtful or cruel or discriminating and that can mean that we lose young people they you know people take their life young people take their own lives because it's just too hard and so drawing that link for people i think is really important 
that we're not just talking about a hypothetical here. We're talking about young people who are incredibly vulnerable. Yeah. It's dehumanizing a lot of that ideology and that that stuff, that hateful talk and and the sort of binary nature of it, eh? Like it's and it has real life implications you're absolutely right i mean as we went to air if you like if we, if we re- just before record this a very high profile school in victoria came under pressure from their church affiliated church and saying that they had the right to refuse the choice of a school captain and that school captain came out and was very open about their sexuality and one of the things and this goes back to that generational piece which i've i find this quote i'm going to read you in a second which i find absolutely superb which is and this is from the the captain of the school who's been elected is coming under fire to remove have his position taken away because of his sexuality and he talks about the beauty of my generation is its widespread gentle disinterest for sexuality so that's reframing uh sexuality in a whole different way and a whole different generation's perspective that maybe us, if you're Generation X, I certainly am, what we said was important or not important. That makes my heart sing because that talks to lots of the good stuff that exists out there. Yes, so I am Gen X and I absolutely love that quote. I just think, you know, what an inspirational young person that goes straight to the heart of uh, what I was trying to say much less articulately before, which is that, you know, we shouldn't obsess and it doesn't matter. And there's a big generational divide on, on this issue. And thank goodness this is being demonstrated because it's, you know, completely irrelevant to who people are in the world. My young person is the same person and their gender is irrelevant to who they are, what they stand for, how I love them, how they love me and what they're going to do in the world. It should be completely irrelevant, and it's going to be, you know, it was clearly a ch- it's clearly a challenge for the particular group of schools where this has become an issue. But I think it's also a challenge beyond the faith based p- communities. It's a challenge in our workplaces where we we still have not really come to terms with with how we manage and support people where there's any sort of difference to do with gender. Yeah. So it's it's um as I said before, you know, full credit to that young person. What a powerful piece of just quiet but firm leadership. Absolutely. And a whole lot of self-awareness in there, right? And just surety about who they are and the fact they're happy with who they are and going to stand they're going to stand there firmly so amazing as we look towards wrapping up i just want to get your thoughts on what the future looks like for you and also for your organization because we touched on it before like you're on boards you're on the peak body for the community foundation movement you're on philanthropy australia's board have i forgotten it a center for australian progress as well like there's you, you know there's a whole lot of hours of meetings i can see there and then you've got a day job and then we've talked about you being a parent is there any stuff that you want to do for yourself? Like, is there, is, <laughs> uh, Well, I'm sitting at the moment looking at my chickens wandering around my garden. Um, and I think we heard one of them as well, which is great. <laughs> yes, and, yeah. and I have bees in the background, so I balance my, my work life with a really, really clear focus on the things that I love, which is sort of gardening and looking after those bees and chickens, much to the amusement of my kids. And so... That's what I really care about and how I decompress. 
I love it because I call them flow tasks. So they're just mindless things that I can do in the background while I'm thinking about many other things. But look, in terms of the organisation and where we're going, there's, there's so much to say. We're part of a sector which is really mindful about how we increase generosity in Australia and how we grow giving and not just for the sake of growing giving but for the sake of you know there's so much to do out there and we think from climate change through to First Nations self-determination the immediate work of this year that we're really heavily involved in and, and is it amazing piece of leadership from so many is the work of the voice to parliament and the work of the referendum and this is you know in australia if this is that i think the key challenge that we will face as a nation that we will be the test of of us as a nation of whether we can show generosity and grace and compassion and reconciliation to our first nations people and be more whole as a nation if we pass the voice to parliament and we look to our friends in New Zealand and the the way you've been able to negotiate treaty and bring that fully into your public life. So that is the work of this year and that is the work of our organisation this year and work, working alongside our First Nation leaders. And we really hope, I think, that we see the best of Australians in this referendum this year. And that, for our international guests, is around effectively changing or amending the Constitution of Australia and focus on a fairer Australia, looking backwards? Bringing, like yeah, bringing our First Nations people into our Constitution and, and having a voice to Parliament. And that's going to be, there's been no formal treaty or, or um, reconciliation with our First Nations peoples in Australia. Hmm. And that's uh, just something that needs to happen so we can acknowledge, heal and move forward and also walk alongside the oldest living culture in the world yeah. and draw on that knowledge and wisdom. Yeah, because I did a sociology degree and I remember um, one of the writers, John Pilcher, is a sociologist or a, a writer in Australia talking about the impacts of laws, all sorts of societal issues on Aboriginal people. And, you know, in terms of imprisonment, how many die in prison, like the, the sort of social outcomes, alcoholism, all of those things need to be, ref all of that needs to be acknowledged and reflected in a, a different kind of Australia in the future. Yes. I mean, we know the world over, don't we, that, you know, First Nations people, no matter what country they're in, need the opportunity to speak for themselves, to advocate for themselves, to, you know, have self-determination. That's how we change you know, really woeful outcomes for that we see in Australia that we are not proud of and that's a shameful part of our history. So it'll be really, really interesting test for us as a nation to see whether we can um, come in behind this national referendum that will happen sometime around September or October and, and our First Nations people will have their own voice into our parliament. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah. And Philanthropy Australia have are leading from the front and, and so are ACF, the organisation you run. So philanthropy is, you know, put in a leadership position on this and giving and, and money and philanthropy is going to play an important part, right? Yeah, and like this is the beauty of philanthropy. I mean, this is the power of giving, which is that you can get in behind, you know, really incredibly important critical moments in time in, in our nation and globally and make a difference. And this is a really 
amazing example of many people giving together can make a difference to support something like this. So you know, there are, like there is in any major political points of time, we have lots of public awareness going on out there about why this work is important and why this change will be important and that needs to be supported with philanthropic dollars. So yes, so that's the work of the time. We're raising a million dollars this year to to support this work and that's just a drop in the ocean of what's going to be needed. Marie Sidey, a massive thank you for joining me on Purposely. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do. 